historical context, abrogation, the critics are dealt with the jurisdiction treatment of the legacy of the prophet and his companions and disciples. However, in contrast to the juristic discourses on the Quran, there are extensive classical debates on the historicity or authenticity of the Hadith, oral traditions attributed to the Prophet, and the Sunnah, historical narratives typically about the Prophet but also his companions. While Muslim jurists agree that the authenticity of the Quran as God's revealed word is beyond any doubt, classical jurists recognize that many of the traditions attributed to the Prophet were Okay, so let's stop right there for a second. Uh, so, so a couple points here. Uh, we've spoken a little bit about hadith over the last couple of classes, including the last week's class. And I raised the point that a lot of the stories that we take as essentially the story of the Prophet, peace be upon him, more often than not, it's majority opinion that this happened first, this happened second, this happened third. And just to repeat a point from last time, that in terms of authenticating the Hadith narrations, uh, there was prime concern over authenticating narrations that had information that we would be held to account for. So for example, if the prophet is saying do X, Y, Z, uh, then we are assuming we're going to be held to account before Allah for X, Y, Z, which means we better make sure that the prophet said it and uh, in contrast, if it's a moment from history, like what year was fasting made ob obligatory, uh, we don't need to know that when we face Allah Ta'ala. And so there was not as much concern about authenticating those narrations. Nevertheless, at one level, there was a concern about authenticating every single hadith or critiquing the authenticity of every single hadith. But the point I made last time is that for a historical narrative, you might find 10 different attempts to critique the authenticity. Uh, but if it's a narrative, it's a hadith with information that we would be held to account for, uh, then there might be 100 or 10,000 uh, attempts to critique the authenticity. And, and so that's, uh, that's an ongoing debate as well. I mean, most of the big issues have been settled, but with new technology, there's new methods of, of analyzing these things which can cause subtle differences in terms of how authentic, uh, how authentic or not authentic we regard uh, a narration. And then another key point is the difference between hadith and sunnah. So in the different schools of law, these are two different things, except for one school of law. In the Hanbali school of law, hadith and sunnah are the same thing. Meaning, how do we commonly define sunnah? Anything that the Prophet, peace be upon him, did uh, repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, whereas the hadith contains everything that he did, even if he only did it one time. And, and so in the, the other schools of law, the difference between hadith and sunnah is exactly as I just mentioned, which is hadith is the raw material compiling everything about the Prophet, peace be upon him. Where sunnah would be those things that are repeatedly practiced. Meaning if the prophet is doing something over and over again, then it's probably fair to assume that we should be paying attention. Of course, if he's telling us to do something, then it's an even higher level of priority. And so in the Hanbali school, if the prophet did it once, it's automatically a sunnah. In the other schools, from the legal perspective, 
if the prophet said to do it or if it's something he did repeatedly it's a sunnah and the hadith is 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 just the raw material that contains anything and and everything and then within the sunnah we might subcategorize things excuse me according to what the prophet peace be upon him prescribed versus what he didn't prescribe if he prescribed it then we still call it a sunnah and then there's a level of of sunnah-ness, sunnah-mu'akadah, sunnah-ver-mu'akadah, so forth and so on. But if it's something he did repeatedly, but he didn't tell us we had to do it, then we often categorize that as ittiba. This is something that we might just follow out of love for the Prophet, peace be upon him. So what you may not realize, you might be familiar with the fact that the Prophet often dressed in white. He, I don't know of any narration where he even hinted that we should dress in white. Um, he also uh, had clothing that was white with red stripes. You might not even be familiar with that, um, but there's no point where he is telling us to do to dress in such clothes. Out of love for the Prophet, peace be upon him, we might do that. In contrast, you know, having your clothes clean, that would be a, a sunnah because the Prophet is doing it, he's telling us to do it, so forth and so on. And then, of course, we have the, the matters in terms of the acts of worship and such that, you know, these are fadrakats, these are sunnarakats, so forth and so on. So the key point we're making here is one, the distinction between authenticating different types of hadith and number two, the difference between, uh, the difference between what is hadith and what is sunnah. All right, Aman uh, 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 continued. There are some points when you're, when you're reading where it starts breaking up. I don't know if you're moving around or something, but uh, keep reading until. Okay. Wait, question. Um, earlier you said about how, like, with technology and stuff, the um, we can, like, authenticate or analyze more. So, like, yeah. what are some examples of how that works? So, I mean, so uh, one of my classmates, this lit literally is is the work of his research, where he, he literally put all the hadith into a database. And he's analyzing things like language usage. And he's noticing these patterns of language usage that would be very consistent with what is officially determined to be how people speak. Now, what is the point here? The point here is that he's illustrating that the hadith are actually authentically as a whole body capturing normal human speech. You know how the Quran has a style, it's not normal human speech. But yeah. one of the attacks on the hadith is that they're made up. But he is showing you know, through data, that in terms of the way people speak, the Hadith patterns over the 23 years or so are consistent with the way people speak. You and I may not know those subtleties because we're just reading it as, you know, here the Prophet says this, the Prophet says that, peace be upon him. Mm -hmm. But uh, that would be one example. And then, of course, um, further analysis of all the chains of narration is, is another big thing. So back then, a person had to analyze the chain of chains of narration on paper. Now you can do it all with data. And what took, you know, you know, huge amounts of times back then can now be done in seconds. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. You were saying? Oh no, I, I heard you saying something. Should I read from in this context? Uh, read from. Uh, yeah. In this context, however, Muslim jurists did not just focus on whether a particular report was authentic or fabrication, but on the extent or degree of reliability and the attendant 
legal consequences. Okay, so that was the point that, that I was just making. Uh, the point being that we're looking at what are the consequences of this hadith being authentic or not. And so if there's a legal consequence, what does that literally mean? Is there a consequence in terms of me standing before Allah on the day of judgment? So for example, in the Quran itself, uh, if you don't know the story of Yusuf alayhi salam, uh, like the whole of Surah 12, uh, if you don't know any of it, uh, is that going to hurt you on the day of judgment? No, probably not, because there, there aren't any commands in there. Uh, but if you skip the eyes of fasting, then that can affect you on the day of judgment. And, and so same type of thing here. Or like in Surah Al-Kaf, Surah 18, you have the story of Musa alayhi salam talking to, to Khidr, or you have the metaphors of the people of two gardens. If you don't know any of this, is it going to affect you in the day of judgment? Potentially not. Meaning if you're knowing it and acting on it, taking lessons from it can benefit you, yeah. But if you've never been taught it, you are technically not losing anything. If you've never been taught fasting, that's a different issue. Okay, continue. Importantly, Muslim jurists distinguish between the reliability and normativity of traditions. Even if a tradition proved to be authentic, this did not necessarily mean that this is normatively binding, because most jurists differentiated between the Prophet's sacred and temporal roles. Okay, so here's another big point. Just because a hadith is authentic doesn't mean that it contains information that we need in our facing of Allah Ta'ala. So, so if we can authenticate that the Prophet, peace be upon him, wore a shirt, you know, or an izar, like a lungi type thing, uh, that was white with red stripes, just because we can authenticate it doesn't mean that it's an obligation for me to follow it, right? So authenticity is not the same as, as obligation. Okay, continue. The Prophet was understood as having performed a variety of roles in his lifetime, including that of a bearer and conveyor of the divine message, a moral and ethical sage and instructor, a political leader, a military commander and soldier, an arbitrator and judge, a husband and father, and a regular human being and a member of society. Not everything the Prophet did or did in these various capacities and roles created normative obligations on Muslims. Okay, that I think everyone understands, right? So, so what the Prophet, peace be upon him, how he would speak with Fatima, Zahra, how he would speak with Aisha, Umm al-Mu'minin, how he would speak, um, how he would walk. Um, there's lots of material there as lessons for our benefit, but it doesn't mean that any of it is binding upon us. And that is a difference between, in terms of levels of obligation, that which is fard or wajib versus Sunnah, in terms, when you have sunnah on its own, we spoke about it as repeated practices of the Prophet, peace be upon him, especially where he's saying to do something. Now, if you put sunnah in relationship to other levels of obligation, so the big ones would be fard or wajib, and then sunnah, and then nafal, and sometimes mustahab. So, so fard means what? That I have to do it. If I don't do it, it is a sin. And haram is the other end. Haram is, I'm not supposed to do it, but if I do it, it's a sin. Yeah. So if I avoid a haram, it's a reward. If I do a fard, it's a reward. If I skip a fard, it is a sin. Sunnah 
if I skip it, it is not necessarily a sin. If I repeatedly skip it without justification, then it can become sinful. If I do it, however, it's a reward. Yeah. And then nuffle is basically, if I do it, I get rewarded. If I don't do it, I don't lose anything. And at the other end, you have makruh. So after haram, less than haram, you have makruh, which is discouraged, which means that if I do it, it is possibly not a sin. If I avoid it, it is probably a reward. If, however, I keep doing a makruh, then it is potentially a sin. And more than that, it is often a pathway into haram. In the middle, then, we have value neutral, which is neither reward nor, nor sinful. Okay, uh, continue. The Prophet did not always act as a lawmaker or legislator. And part of the challenge for Muslim jurists was to ascertain when his statements and actions were intended to create legal obligations of duty. Taklif. Okay, and interesting. When, oh, yeah, finish the sentence, and then we'll go back to this. Yeah. And when they were not meant to have any normative weight. Okay, so taklif is one of those interesting cases of a word changing meaning when it goes from Arabic into Urdu. So what does taklif mean in Urdu? Anybody? Trouble. Yeah, it means trouble, problem, burden, pain. <laughs> so taklif in Arabic actually means responsibility. And so I guess that sums up a lot of the uh, daisy outlook on responsibility that is just a big burden. Okay, so so at what point is someone mukallif, meaning someone is uh, uh, someone has or mukallaf, I should say, someone has obligation upon them, meaning at what point is someone responsible, and and so the general principle, uh, the term for this is you are balig, and balig essentially from a legal perspective means that you have the intellectual capacity to understand what you are supposed to do and what you are not supposed to do, as well as to understand that it is beneficial or detrimental. Like for example, a little, a little toddler is not going to understand that they can't hold a knife, right? And if you pull the knife away, the toddler wants the knife. But uh, a child old, older than that understands that a knife can, can, can hurt. And so a higher level than that is to understand that there's benefits and detriments into actions. And so the other, the other part of it, one part of it is that you're intellectually mature. The other part of it is that you are physically mature, which essentially means that you've begun to go through puberty. And, and so like the signs of puberty have, have, have started happening on, on your body. At that point, you are considered to be balig, which means you are mukallaf. Balig meaning you're mature, you have reached maturity. And then mukallaf means now you are Islamically responsible. Obviously, it doesn't mean you have the level of responsibility that a parent does, um, but you have responsibility to, to, to some degree. Okay, uh, continue. In some cases, Muslims are affirmatively prohibited from imitate, imitating the Prophet's conduct because it is believed that in certain situations, the Prophet acted in his capacity as God's messenger, a status that cannot be claimed by other human beings. Okay, so, so simple question, and it's sort of stated here. Uh, we rarely talk about things, your ways you're not allowed to imitate the prophet, peace be upon him. So what's the fundamental way you are not allowed to imitate the prophet, peace be upon him? Drawing. Sorry? 
like drawing him. Okay, but he, I mean, he didn't draw himself, so we're not imitating him. Yes, claiming the fact that he's the messenger. Like, I can't be claiming that I'm the messenger, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, so this is something that is usually not brought up in Sunday school because it's not really much of an issue for an individual here and there. But yeah, so one thing I cannot do that the prophet did is to claim to be a prophet. And, and likewise, I cannot claim to be a messenger. Uh, off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of uh, another example. I mean, there's uh, things that are not relevant for us, but at, after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him, you're not allowed to marry any of his widows. They were essentially, uh, they could not remarry. But I'm trying to think if there's uh, anything else that uh, we could not do or claim that he did. Uh, yeah. All right, uh, uh, Aman, keep reading, uh, reading, please. Other than the normative implications of the prophet's sacred and temporal roles, a great deal of juristic disputation focused on the practices and opinions of the prophet's family, including his wives and the companions and disciples, Sahaba. While Sunni jurists tended to emphasize and exhibit deference to the four caliphs who governed the nascent Islamic state after the death of the prophet, known in the Sunni tradition as al-Rashidun, or the rightly guided. Shia jurists heavily relied on the teachings of the infallible imams, all of whom were the descendants of Ali, the fourth caliph, and the prophet's cousin, and his wife Fatima, the prophet's daughter. Yeah. Very good. So, so this is also, uh, once again, and this I think we've also talked about before, uh, fundamental difference between Sunni and Shia. The fundamental difference is not who should have been the Khalifa. That's what is taught almost 100% of the time. The fundamental difference between Sunni and Shia is who do we turn to to give us our primary interpretation of the Prophet and the Quran? So, so Sunnis and Shias, and there's a third group, the Ibadis, that no one ever talks about, that are just about as old. Uh, they all rely upon the Prophet and the Quran, peace be upon him. And then the Sunnis are looking to the companions to be taught about the Prophet and the Quran and to in, as the primary interpreters of the Prophet and the Quran. And the Shias are looking at the Imams as the primary interpreters of the Prophet and the Quran. And then where's the overlap? <clears throat> and so it's easy to, to look at the distinction. The overlap is that the Imams in Sunni in Shia tradition are still regarded as scholars or as people of astonishingly high Iman by the Sunnis. So, so you have Ali, radiallahu an, karamallahu wajahu. So here he is uh, the, the first Imam, and then of course he is one of the greatest of all companions. And then you have Hassan and Hussein, who are the second and third Imams. And in Sunni tradition, they're revered as the grandchildren of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Then you have Jafar al-Sadiq, who in Shia tradition is one of the major imams, especially in terms of articulating the tradition. And he is considered to be a scholar in terms of Sunni tradition. So Sunni and Shia is not like Catholic and Protestant, where there are two different universes next to each other. They are two universes that are overlapping each other that do have some differences, especially in the experience and the consciousness. Uh, but they're not, they're not like oil and water the way we often uh, imagine uh, the two to be. And at the same point, I also don't want to minimize the difference between the two, meaning I'm, I don't want to exaggerate the difference, but I also don't want to minimize, meaning there's still an integrity of 
how the two uh, traditions uh, operate. Okay, uh, very good, Amon. Uh, Usay, do you want to read for us? Sure, I'll go. One second. Uh, from where exactly? You know, uh, the next from... paragraph where it says, it is fair to say. It is fair to say that the Quran and Sunnah are the two primary and formal sources of legitimacy in Islamic law. Quite aside from the question of whether most of Islamic law is derived from these two sources, the Quran and Sunnah play the foundational role in the processes of constructing legal legitimacy. This, this, however, begs the question as to why instrumentalities of jurisprudence, such as analogy or reason and consensus, are typically listed among the four, four formal sources of Islamic law. Okay, so, so if you remember last time, we said that there's four primary sources, the Quran, the Sunnah, and then Ijma, consensus, and Qiyas, meaning analogy. So he's saying, all right, if you got the Quran and Sunnah, then what about why is so much attention given to the other two? All right, uh, let's say continue. The response in part is that the utilization of concepts of qiyas or aql and ijma not, not just as instrumentalities of law, but as legitimating and foundational, and foundational origins of law was a necessary legal fiction. The emergence of this legal fiction in the first couple of centuries after the death of the Prophet took place after contentious and at times tumultuous jurisprudential debates. Ultimately, these concepts were intended to steer a middle course between unfettered and unrestrained borrowing of local customary laws and practices into Islamic law. And on the other extreme, the tendency toward literalism and over-reliance on textualism as the basis of legitimacy in the process of legal development. Okay, so, so to put this into simple English, what is taking place? Um, at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, things were not so clearly articulated. This is bard, this is sunnah, this is nafil. The prophet used that language. He used that language you find all over the Hadith literature. But for example, in the Hanafi school, fard and wajib are two different things, even though in terms of etymological meaning, they mean essentially the same thing. They both mean obligatory. But fard in the Hanafi school has a different meaning than wajib in the Hanafi school. And so we mentioned the schools before as methods to try to construct the process of interpretation. So the most rudimentary tools for starting this process after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him, was literally analogy. So one example, and we might've talked about this before, is in terms of the prohibition of alcohol. Uh, question, does the Quran prohibit alcohol? Question, how would you answer that? Especially after last week's discussion. Uh, I think the final consensus was that after Salah, I mean, you're not supposed to come drunk to Salah, or was that the second, That's the second, version, of it? Okay. second version of it? Okay. I have it, I have it in my notes because I did take notes last week. Okay. Mashallah, mashallah. okay, so in terms of the evolution, first about Khamar, it's saying there's benefit, but the sin outweighs the, about the, outweighs the benefit. And then the second is don't come drunk to prayer. And it was the filth of Shaitan, right? And the third is that it's the filth of Shaitan. But here's the, here's the question, what is Khamar? Amr in almost every translation of the Quran into English will translate as alcohol or liquor. Amr at that time was wine made from grapes. And some might include wine made from dates. Good. So, so think about what we're saying. Is beer included as Hamar at the time of the prophet, peace be upon him? You can make the argument, no. And so by way of analogy, we're looking at, okay, why is Hummer prohibited? It's that second prohibition that it intoxicates you. 
to the point that you don't know what you're saying. You're going to stumble over what you're saying. And thus all intoxicants that do that are then considered to be prohibited. And there's funny stories in, in Islamic history where, you know, some mother will go to a major Islamic scholar and say, okay, my son's, you know, my son is eating such and such material and he acts really strange. And, or uh, he's, you know, he's smoking such and such material and, he, and it makes him act really weird. It says haram. And then the sheikh will say, okay, come back in about a week. And then uh, they come back in about a week. And then the mom's like, okay, what's the answer? He says, no, it's okay. And she said, well, why'd you, why'd you tell us to wait a week? He said, well, I had to try it and then see what it did <laughs> to me. And so that may not be the, the most scientific way, but, but the point is that, um, uh, so by uh, the text is saying Hamar is prohibited, but then by analogy, it's referring to all these other things. And so, uh, so analogy becomes one of the most basic tools of Islamic law right from the start, not only in prohibition, but also in terms of trying to figure out what is allowed, so forth, and, and so on. And so they're using the term legal fiction here. Legal fiction is, is more the idea that, okay, this was an official tool uh, as opposed to something that was used out of just simple necessity. Okay, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, let's say why don't you continue. Wait, I have a question, sorry. Yes, go for it. So the tool of analogy that's being used here, would it be the same as inductive reasoning? Um, how do you define inductive reasoning? Because there's inductive, deductive, and then abductive. Yeah. So uh, how would you there's define third? inductive? Uh, so inductive, at least from what I was taught, is where you can come to a consensus using an analogy. So like, for example, you can say that I'm on your breaking up. Can you repeat what you're saying? I'm sorry. Right. An example of inductive reasoning I can give that I learned is like a certain chemical harm animal in the environment because a different chemical harmed another animal in the same environment in the past. Okay. Okay, make your, your full point. I'm sorry. Like, for example, because um, a chemical harmed an animal in the past, a certain chemical is going to harm an animal today. That's mm -hmm. at least from what I learned, how inductive reasoning works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so it's not unlike uh, things like extrapolation and such. Uh, my concern in, in making the analogy of analogy to inductive reasoning is that it seems to limit what we're speaking about when we're talking about analogy. So I would include it, but uh, I would not say that it's limited to that. And so, uh, uh, so one way to, to differentiate between what we're saying here versus your example, your example was focused on the effect of of uh, or the harm that is being caused. Yeah. And the first thing we're looking at is what was the motivation yeah, of, of the prohibition. Now then to unify this with yours, we are looking at the effect of the Hamar. And in that way we could say inductive that, okay, if Hamar is causing intoxication, therefore uh, anything that causes intoxication um, is is 
prohibited, but I'm suggesting that that's not limited to inductive reasoning. Makes sense or if I totally confuse you? That does, thank you. And I think just one quick point, I think inductive, right, well, I searched this up, but uh, inductive reasoning, I guess the conclusion is maybe true, whereas in like an in, in abductive, it's also maybe true, but inductive, it has to be true. So I think in our cases, I guess, we kind of define that it is always true. So I guess inductive reasoning would not apply for that case, if that makes sense. Yeah, that works. Yeah. The key, the key point is, is when we're trying to, what we call syncretize two different tools, uh, we might try to force them to be the same thing. And, and often that they're not exactly the same thing. Okay. Uh, any other questions so far? All right, uh, let's say it, please continue. Um, as legal instrumentalities, both the predominantly Sunni concept Qiyas and Shia will utilize deductive reasoning. So I oh, identify yeah. the critic. Huh? Deductive right there. Okay, keep going. Oh. <laughs> utilize deductive reasoning to identify the critical issue in one legal ruling and then extend the same ruling to a new case. Jurists use carefully defined analytical skills in deducing the operative cause or racial legis, the element that triggers the law into action in Arabic of a particular textual law or determination. Okay, so so this is a good term to know among in your growing vocabulary of, of Islamic law. You know, what is the cause uh, um, or here, you know, the ratio legis, what is the, the reason for the prohibition? What is the reason for the obligation? When you're ready, continue. Oh, right, okay, sorry. Um, confronted by an unprecedented or novel case, often for which there is no law on point, the jurist would extend the ruling in a previous case, hostile to the new case. Oh, is that foul? Well, oh, okay. But only if both cases share the same operative cause. Okay. So asal is the singular of usul, and far is the singular of furu. So what is asal? It's the root. Far is the branch. And so in terms of how the jurists are imagining actions, <clears throat> they're looking for what are the root actions or the root cases, which is parallel, but not the same as precedent, but it overlaps with the idea of precedent. And then now we have a new case. And so can we look at that as a branch, you know, off of a root case that we have? And the basis for that is to figure out, do they have the same cause? And so a lot of this is gonna start getting uh, very, very theoretical. I'm gonna to try to minimize the theoriness as we go through, but continue. So, so the ratio legus, is that just like what causes the, I'm trying to understand what that, that triggers the law into action, I'm trying to understand what that really means. Yeah, uh, let's see, Hani, uh, uh, have you covered this term in, in law school? I don't know if, if the, the kids are walking all over you at this moment or if your husband's walking all over you at this moment. Okay. No, they're not walking all over you, or <laughs> no, you, you have not had this term. <laughs> okay, so the basic idea is, is that for our purposes, this would be the trigger, you know, or the basis of the law, the basis of the, of the, uh, of the legislation. So the basis of the prohibition of Hamar is its intoxicating quality. Okay. 
And then a second aspect, and I mean, I don't want to get too far off of the topic, because Allah speaks of Hamar as filth of shaitan, specifically grape wine. Uh, <clears throat> if you pour grape wine on your body, so let's say you just won, you know, the, the World Series, uh, that would break your wudu uh, in terms of the, uh, of, of the schools of law. <laughs> but... In the other schools of law, if you so that's especially so that's in all the schools of law. If you uh, like, if you if it goes on your body, it breaks your wudu because it's filth. But that analogy does not apply to the other things. So beer, uh, by analogy in terms of consumption, intoxicates you. Therefore, it's forbidden. Beer, uh, we're not told why uh, grape wine is the filth of shaitan, except that it is. So beer is not necessarily the filth of shaitan. So if you shampoo your hair with beer, yeah, that does not break your wudu. Now- Would that be the same thing as like the underlying principle or no? Is that too- It's saying we're, we're almost there. And so this is the thing with, with, with law, likewise with philosophy, it's the, the challenge is to be precise in terms of the terminology. And so underlying principle is, is sort of the same, the same area, yeah. Uh, if we change underlying principle to underlying underlying cause, that's cause. closer to what okay. we're talking about here. Yeah. yeah. So, so cause yeah, of why the legis legislation or why the ruling was yes became a ruling. Yes, exactly. Passed. Whether it's an obligation or a prohibition. Okay. So now let's change. Let's make this a real world example. So, Hamar, uh, built of shaitan. Therefore, if it's on your body, like it splashes on your body, it breaks your wudu, okay? Because it's filth. Uh, then by analogy, some of the schools of law say, because we don't know why, that this applies to everything that is alcohol-based, which rules out what then? Cologne and perfume. And then other schools of law say, no, that's ridiculous. Because uh, number one, uh, cologne and perfume, you don't drink them because if you do, you're going to go blind. And so it's not even a question of intoxication. The only commonality is, is that this is technically alcohol. And so if you apply a cologne or perfume, the other schools of law say, yeah, that's fine. Just don't use grape wine as your cologne or perfume. Okay. Uh, but some schools of law say, no, uh, all alcohol is prohibited both in terms of consumption as well as touching your body. You'll be happy to know as, as uh, Daisy's and then Amon, your family is probably Jaffrey's that you're, you're okay in terms of wearing cologne and perfume that is alcohol-based. But that suddenly explains why we have things like Itar in, in the Arab world, which is the super concentrated uh, of frankincense that sometimes smells nice and sometimes is just not you know pleasant to in American nose. Okay. Um, uh, any other questions so far? Is there a technicality that you can maybe apply, like applying it on your clothes is not the same as applying it on your body? I'm just curious. Um, yeah, you can probably do that as a, as a technicality. Absolutely. Because okay. just like putting filth in your clothes doesn't, doesn't break your wudu. Fair enough. Can we continue? Uh, please, yeah. We'll go to the end of this paragraph. So. Okay. 
the, the, sorry, the derivation of the operative cause of a ruling, istikhraj dalat al-hukum, was important not only because it had become the method by which the law was extended to cover new cases, but also because it became one of the primary instruments for legal systemization and also change. Okay, so this is just exp- uh, making the same point. So the full term istikhraj is the pulling out, so the derivation, illat, so that's illa, uh, of the cause, al-hukum, of the ruling. And, and so, so this became, you can say, in the formation of what becomes the field of jurisprudence, this is one of the early aspects of it. Figuring out what are the things that are haram, but why? What are the things that are farth, but why? And then figuring out by extension, what else would that apply to? Okay, continue. If the operative cause changes or no longer exists, the law in turn must change. The Islamic legal maxim of okay, I'm going to skip yeah, that because translation yeah. was really tough. Um, becomes substantially the same as the Latin maxim providing the law is changed if the reason of the law is changed. Okay, so in simple language, we're basically saying that, all right, if the core uh, cause is not present, then the application of the law doesn't apply. And, and so if the core is still there, then the law still applies. So is that like saying if alcohol was not intoxicating tomorrow, I could maybe have alcohol? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So here, here I'll tell you something else fun. So you know how you have like non-alcoholic beer and such? And, and so if you go to uh, Saudi Arabia, you will see non-alcoholic beer on sale, like Anheuser-Busch, all the big companies. And then you look in the back, it's like 0.2% alcohol. And then all of us from America would say, Haram, Saudis, look at what you guys are doing, right? But how did the person come to this? this, uh, How did they decide that this is okay? So, So this is being narrated to me by someone who actually asked the guy in Saudi Arabia who gave the stamp of approval for this. He said... We have Hadith where the Prophet, peace be upon him, is drinking grape juice. And he's letting it sit in his cup for like two days. And when it's sitting there for two days, it ferments to about 0.2%. It might be 2%, but I think it's 0.2%. And he's still drinking it. And so therefore, it's concluded that, all right, that amount is okay. And therefore, the Saudis have okayed, you know, non-alcoholic beer having that much amount of alcohol in it. What do you all think about that? Interesting. I didn't know there was non-alcoholic beer to begin with. (laughs) So, thanks for enlightening us. What about, like, alcohol and food and stuff then? Then basically it does not intoxicate you so it's yeah i think like vanilla extract and stuff alcohol like a lot of it so this is the exact uh thing that we're ready for so so i'm not going to tell you all it's okay to run to either your cabinet or to jewel to get you know a big you know life-size gallon of vanilla extract and such but this is the exact type of argument that's given that if it's less than X amount of, of, of percentage of alcohol, you know, in terms of what's remaining, then it's okay. And then what about those who say, hey, I just had a little bit of wine, 
but not enough to make me drunk. Okay. So, so keep in mind, when we're saying what the prophet did, peace be upon him, we're not even addressing the issue of intoxication. We're basically saying what amount was still considered to be uh, present and still considered to be insignificant. And, and so if someone says, yeah, I had some wine, and, but I'll drink enough wine that I won't get drunk. I'm a moderate drinker. What I usually say to them is that, all right, okay, just pretend that the wine is urine and see if you're going to willing to drink that much urine. And then they're all like, yeah, gross. But uh, so sometimes that logic, I think, um, uh, like if we're really going to have like the, 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 the jurisprudence on it, the argument is that if X amount is haram, then all of it is haram, no matter the amount. And then that little amount, the 0.2% is the extent of how much is allowed. So it would have to be a glass of water that has up to like 2%, 0.2% wine. Then you can probably argue that it's okay. The concentration limit, not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. We're getting scientific, okay. Yeah. Uh, Aman says it would be 0.2% because legal BAC limit today is 0.8. Oh, interesting. But uh, actually I don't think those are two are the same thing. So the blood alcohol content is how much alcohol is in you, not how much is in the drink. Yeah. So, so something could be 100% alcohol <laughs> but if you have a drop of it it's not going to make your blood 100% <laughs> so alright uh, let's continue uh, inshallah uh, we'll in interpretation as well as education adjudication. As education, adjudication sorry this helped generate a more systematic legal institution it meant that cases involving substantially the same issues were decided similarly. This practice in turn led to the development of the presumption that precedent ought to be followed unless there is sufficient cause for exception or change, which could be uh, for changed circumstances, equity, or a number of other legal justifications. Okay, so another good term to add to your, your vault of, of legal vocabulary is istishab. This hub is literally the assumption that nothing has changed and defaulting to the assumption that nothing has changed. And, and so, so at a philosophical level, we're saying that the default of society is stability and the default of, the, of human behavior is consistency. That's what we're saying at the general philosophical uh, level. And in the, in the case of Islamic law, we're saying if no other factors have been added to a case, they lead us to think that the situation is different, meaning if the, it's the same illa, the same cause, then we just assume it's the same cause. Unless someone else brings in uh, indication that no, this is actually a fundamentally different case. And, and so this is a, a, a good term to know. Uh, let's see, where are we? Uh, let's stop right here. And then we'll do these next two paragraphs, uh, inshallah, next time. Uh, anyone have any questions about anything? Learning a lot about alcohol more than I expected. Yeah. So last last uh, time, it was a complete dismantling of everything that you believed in, <laughs> except for the core things. And now, you know, we're both saying alcohol is really bad and not as bad as you think. I, I don't need a gap week after last week's trauma. He... <laughs> Probably why he's not here today. He's usually the first person in class. Yeah. Okay.
Okay, very good. Inshallah, if there's no other questions. Uh, we are on Thanksgiving break uh, at Loyola next week. Um, I'm fine if you all uh, want to still meet. Uh, what do you all say? What would you like? We can I'm okay with it on Monday. So say you're saying yes? Yes. Okay, uh, Aman, what are you saying? I'm down. Okay, and honey's saying either way. Okay, so inshallah, we'll, we'll still meet next week, inshallah. And then the week after that is the last week of the semester. The week after that is finals, and then we'll figure out what to do uh, afterwards. Where do we make it into the book? We made it to 0.652 out of 15,221. Okay, so we got a little bit more to go. All righty. So if that's it, then uh, no other questions, then we will stop right here. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastafiruka, wanatubu ilaik. All right, may Allah reward you all, inshallah, and we'll see you next week. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.